This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Happy Family Day to you. Libby will be back on Wednesday. And what a beautiful day we have to enjoy this Family Day, a tradition that began in the province of Ontario in February of 2008, which was a fulfilled promise of then-Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty. Do you mark the day by spending it with family members or friends you consider as family, or is it just a quiet rest day or maybe a day to go for a walk with all this beautiful sunshine. 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Join the conversation with us. And now time for the Zoomer Squad. Nice of our Zoomer squad to join us on what would normally be a day off for them. Peter Mugridge is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder is chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP. Hi, guys. Hi, Jane. Hi, everyone. Hi, everybody. Well, I'm marking the day here with some of my Zoomer radio family, including you three. Uh, Myron and I did have a family dinner on Saturday with my son Jacob and my sister Deborah, our niece Greta. Uh, what about you, Peter? Are you uh, celebrating with family or just a, an extra day? Yeah, we're not we're not celebrating, but we, uh, you know, I, I enjoy the the sort of the vibe of family day. It's, it's less intense than Christmas or. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, Thanksgiving, you know, so people drop by. We had um, my brother-in-law over and his family over yesterday. My nephew's here now. We're going for a walk later. It's just a, it's just a chance to see family, and it's just in a much more relaxed setting. And I really enjoy it. Right. No gifts, right? <laughs> no gifts, no dinners, you know, no no rushing around. It's just, it's, it's lovely. It's casual, yes. Uh, David, how about you? Well, we've tucked in... Um, Similar to Peter, just relaxing, really not doing much. Just the way it worked this week, we had more FaceTimes with uh, family than than physical visits, just the way different schedules work, nothing significant there. But I just had a FaceTime with uh, my daughter in Phoenix, uh, my grandson yesterday, daughter in uh, Charleston, South Carolina yesterday. So we're scattered a bit, but we use the time to get caught up uh, using uh, technology, I guess. That's nice. And how do you feel, David? I'm ju- just curious because my children are grown as well. When you finish uh, a FaceTime, a Zoom chat, uh, how does it make you feel? Well, we feel very we feel very good about because we do it a lot, so we're really current with what's going on in their world and up to date. And so it's it's not so much, gosh, we haven't seen you for such a long time. Here you are. It's like what happened in the last five or six days. Right. So it's almost like a a constant visiting process for us. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And my daughter, Jamie, if I don't see her for a few weeks, she lives here in the city. But uh, if I have a FaceTime with her for 20 or 30 minutes, I feel caught up. My heart feels full, like just seeing her face. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Bill, what about you? 
Well, today, uh, not necessarily family, coffee with uh, friends who we haven't seen since uh, what we call the before time. And, uh, of course, getting ready for my trip to Toronto for this week's uh, annual meeting on on Wednesday. Uh, But this in Nova Scotia, where I'm talking to you from, this is Heritage Day rather than Family Day. And this year we're celebrating Rita Joe, the Micmac author and uh, poet who was such a trailblazer for her community over the years. So Rita Joe Day in Nova Scotia. So tell us a little bit about Rita Joe. Well, Rita Joe was uh, a Mi'kmaq from the Mi'kmaq community. Uh, She went through a very... difficult uh, uh, growing up in a, in a residential uh, uh, school in a small committee she community she suffered a lot of hardships and then uh, moved to Boston of all places where she met her husband uh, and then came back to Nova Scotia where she wanted to as she said change the negative attitudes that she encountered during her life's journey as a as a Micmac person so she started writing uh, the poems of Rita Joe and she wrote uh, books. Uh, many people will uh, know ones, like, in addition to the song of uh, Rita Joe, the most famous one was I Lost My Talk. And a very wise uh, woman who in her later life, although she did uh, pass away quite early at the age of 74, she still got many awards and recognition for the positive uh, outlook that she had on life in spite of what she and her family had been through. Oh, interesting. Thank you for that. Um, with the Zoomer squad, uh, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, Peter Mugrich, Jane for Libby, and uh, your thoughts on Family Day and how you're spending it, how you feel about your family. Maybe your friends are your family. Uh, Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Bill, we will talk about the CARP AGM that is coming up on Wednesday toward the end of our half hour here. But first, I want to transition to talking about some fascinating science on longevity. And let me ask you this first. Would you want to live to be one? 150. Uh, again, the numbers are 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. Would you want to live to be 150? And David Kravitz, also a demographic specialist. David, you've been researching the idea and asking the question whether the first person to live to be 150 has been born. And what have you learned? Well, I think it's a significant question. I, I did uh, blog about it, but um, because it comes from a Harvard researcher named Dr. David Sinclair, who's been involved with some research into the epigenome, which is a, a protein, I guess, that tells the DNA what type of cell to grow into. And so by trying to re- re-engineer the epigenome, they think they can uh, restore cells to their useful condition, and they've had some success in um, reverse aging the the eye sight, the eye cells of mice, and so on. And so he speculated that with this technique, it's quite possible that the first person to live to 150 and stop right there. That's a dramatic statement in itself. But that the first person that will live to 150 is already alive wow. today. Wow! And that it's quite possible that all this reverse engineering and and slowing down aging and possibly even reversing aging is achievable. And and to me, the significant thing isn't so much 
will this particular technique work? Will we see 150 or not? To me, the real drama here is that the topic is now becoming more routine and that you have scientists who are engaged in this research increasingly talking about this possibility. So I back it up to say, okay, maybe not 150, but 100 is the fastest growing group we know are centenarians, and 100 is no longer that remarkable. And so the longevity um, horizon is being pushed further and further and further. And if it isn't discovery A, it might be discovery B or discovery C. But the amount of money and research being thrown at this is so substantial that we are definitely going to see this at some point. Amazing. And I, 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 maybe you told me this at some point, David, but a baby born these days, like within the last few years, has a 50-50 chance of reaching 100 Oh, for sure. That's for sure. That's a given, um, all things being equal. But um, now they're pushing it out and they're saying uh, there's a hot debate going on among scientists. Some are saying, well, about 115 seems to be the natural limit. Others are saying, no, no, if we can reverse aging, if we can actually re-engineer. And the fascinating part about that is that they will cure a lot of diseases if it works, not by curing the actual disease in situ, like, in, but by just making the cells the way they were when they were younger. So the mm. whole thing vanishes. And that's a whole wild idea. Wow. I can't quite get my head around no. it. But, you know, Harvard <laughs> is not Harvard is uh, blue chip. And there's very serious uh, work going on in this area. Peter, what do you make of what David's telling us? Well, it, it's fascinating and also a little bit unnerving. <laughs> um, the, um, the idea of living to 150... Uh, I, I mean, it doesn't appeal to me at all, um, un- unless you could live like a super healthy 150, you know. But but the idea of living sort of like in old age for 40 more years doesn't appeal to me. So it, it, it would have to be like that question I could only answer if I was given, you know, what condition would, would my life be like? Would I, uh, would I have any money left? Would I have my health left? Would I have my senses left, you know? So just, just the idea of living to 150 itself is, is very kind of unnerving for me. Well, I guess for us, right, because this was never an option. This was never no. something that was achievable. But if you I keep mean, li- it, li- yeah. living to 80 was used to be sort of the considered very old age, you know, just in, when, when I was young, like, oh, they're 80. Like, it's just like incredibly old. You know? <laughs> like, right. And, and now, now 80s, 80s, not even young anymore. No, <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about my dad, my dad uh, just turned eighty-one this weekend, and he's—I mean, he's like he could be sixty-one. He could be my yeah. age. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Bill, uh, what do you think about if you had the option to live to one hundred and fifty based on this science? Are you all for it? I'm absolutely all for it. And since I'm over halfway there and have an age <laughs> that uh, Peter used to call old, uh, I feel much. I always joke that, uh, uh, you know, half jokingly that I wanted to live to at least 125. And I'm glad that uh, David is telling me that now uh, 150 <laughs> may be uh, possible. Uh, I love life. I love what I what I do, and uh, I plan to uh, do everything I can to stay healthy enough to uh, enjoy it. And and yes. Yes, uh, if there was a pill that would do that uh, right now, I'd take it.
That is amazing because I, I sort great. of I think to myself, David, oh, my God, being with myself for 150 years, I might become exhausted of just being me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, the problem is going to be what, what Peter alluded to. It's going to be, um, first of all, you're going to live that long if this works by, by reversing uh, a combination of uh, being healthier as you age. So we know already many diseases that used to be lethal are now chronic conditions that you can manage with medication. Uh, we know there's been significant reduction in heart and stroke disease, cardiac disease, and so on. So there's a treatment angle, but then there's a reverse aging angle if we can re-engineer the cells so that they were the way they were when you were 40, but chronologically your age is going to be your age. But the problem that I predict is going to be the real um, issue is um, where you're going to get enough money to live that long, yes. and what is it, can you really retire? I mean, think about it. If you retire at 65 in a world of 150, that means you've got 85 years to go with no income coming. I mean, that's not going to happen. So we're yeah. going to see a complete revolution in the meaning of retirement and work and working longer uh, to keep the money supply coming in, because that's the part that's going to be the real it already is a challenge. Already today, uh, more people are living to 85, 90, which means a 65-year-old retiree needs to find 25, 30 years' worth of money instead of 10 years' worth of money. And it's already uh, causing a lot of upheaval. Well, and, and Peter, uh, to your point about being 80 being old when we were kids, uh, you know, if you retired at 65, and for the longest time there was mandatory retirement uh, in Canada and here in Ontario for 65, uh, but if you're feeling good, if you're 80 and you're 85 and you feel like you did when you were 55 or 60, then working and getting a paycheck for it doesn't become an issue, really. Well, uh, Bill's the prime example of that, right? Like, um, he's flying into Toronto to head up an AGM of a, you know, a, a busy um, organization. And, uh, you know, like, like he's, he's, he's at an age, and, and you'll excuse me, though, I'm not trying to point out your age, but he's at an age where, where people were, were sort of, you know, in front watching, in front of the TV watching golf or, or you know, puttering around outside or something. Bill's, Bill's life is much more active than... 80 year olds were when I was growing up. So, 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 so that's, that's sort of how the revolution is happening now. People are, are 80 year olds are doing what 65 year olds used to do. And, and the whole thing is, it's all changing. But, but, but the radical life extension is what worries me, like to 150. I just, like you say, Jane, I, I just couldn't, I don't know if there'd be enough things left in life to interest me after, yeah. <laughs> after a hundred years. You know, yeah. like fifty more of the same old thing. I, I just—it's it, all unnerving, and 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 I, I guess when people get to it, they will have adapted, um, you know, emotionally and and uh, sort of intellectually. But where I'm at now, emotionally and intellectually, I can't imagine living that long. Bill, I know you said. I think, I think go you ahead, would. Bill. I final word. Final word to yeah, you on this. Yeah, I think this. you would, uh, Peter. You know, I've. Uh, I tried to retire at the age of 65. I've had four full-time jobs since that uh, time uh, in, in entirely different uh, uh, fields. I'm, and with your broad interest, I'm sure you would be uh, the same. And that's the key. No, I don't want to live 150 doing the same thing over and over again. I want to live to 150 uh, doing something different every 10 years. Okay, we'll leave it there for that topic. I just want to go to the phones. Uh, Sita in Mississauga. Sita, you're always there with us. Uh, what do you have to say today? 
Yes, and you're part of my family as well. So happy Family Day to all. Happy Family Day to you. So Family Day is every day. Always say I love you and spend time to make memories for a lifetime. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like Valentine's Day. It's, it's a reminder, right, to tell the people you love that you love them. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Sita. Have a nice day. You too. Take care. All right. It is our Zoomer squad, Jane for Libby, along with Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge. Uh, let's uh, change topics and discuss former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. He is now spending time with family at home in hospice care, which would indicate uh, his passing is is nearing us. Uh, Thoughts and reflections, David, on the oldest living president at 98. Well, he had a very um, dramatic ascent to the White House because he was a relatively little-known governor outside his home state. And... um, he uh, he wins an election coming out of uh, Watergate, I think, with Gerald Ford. He wins the election. He has a very challenging career uh, in the White House, marred by the Iran- Iranian hostage crisis, which he himself always blamed for uh, being a drag on his reputation, on his presidency. He's thought by many to have actually had the highest IQ of any president. He was a very clever, he is a very clever, um, very intelligent, thoughtful man. He had a lot of good ideas. And I think he had a combination of some bad luck and, and you know, inability to execute, uh, you know, at a very challenging time in U.S. history. So he probably is rated maybe a little lower as a president than he deserved to be. But uh, uh, more importantly for me, and I think from in the Zoomer lens, he goes on. We were just talking about what you do for the rest of He goes on to create a, a tremendous career, you know, the Habitat for Humanity and Housing and helping third world countries. He goes on to create a tremendous follow-up career for himself. Um that is of some 50 years, almost 50 years duration. So mm-hmm. you want to talk about additional careers. So I think he, he's a very remarkable man, uh, much to be honored. Oh, truly. Um, Peter, over to you on Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he's, he's one of these um, public figures who, whose subsequent life after he was um, famous became he be, he sort of had a much more successful post White House life than he did in the White House. White House, as David said, was it was just a lot of problems. Inflation was killing America. Um, you know the, the hostage taking. There was uh, just sort of complete, um, you know, economic and social unrest. And he presided over it all, not very successfully. But afterwards, he became he sort of grew into the man he was and uh, became a very thoughtful man and a very sort of um, leading figure in civil rights and in. Uh, charitable works and poverty helping people you know and poverty and just a very respected man after his career and, and a very you nice know, man there. right a very like a very nice man bill everybody loves jimmy carter absolutely he uh, he was someone who was mired around the uh, world i think 
uh, uh, was probably sometimes admired more by people who were outside of the United States than, uh, than because they had not really uh, known him as a as a president. But he was a he was a trendsetter and uh, uh, as uh, P- David said, a very intelligent uh, man who uh, is whose international work, uh, Habitat for Humanity, and 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 the other international uh, work that he uh, did. Uh, vaccinations for children in in uh, third world uh, uh, countries somebody that everybody admired and and even now the strength that he had uh, in saying uh, look I'm not going to go through the medical steps anymore I want to stay home I want to be with my family in hospice care I think it's a huge continuing example and even as he perhaps fades uh, setting an example to all of us around the world his global one thing real uh, yes, quick James, go ahead David. Um, I just wanted to add, in our context as Zoomer, with his wife, Rosalind right. Carter, particularly Rosalind, they were very much leaders in, in recognizing family caregivers. There's a Rosalind Carter Foundation for Family Caregiving. They pioneered research in the problems that caregivers face in getting better tax treatment for caregivers and educational resources for caregivers. So one of the many good things he did um, with his wife is right in our wheelhouse here at Zoomer in trying to help uh, family caregivers. I'm glad you brought that up. The Carters have been married for more than 75 years, making American history as the longest married presidential couple. And they are together right now uh, as we have time to reflect on Jimmy Carter at home. Uh, he says he will not be going back to the hospital. He is in hospice care with his family at home. And I'm sure he is receiving message after message of, of love and, and peace. Absolutely. It's our Zoomer squad. I've got a few minutes left. Uh, Perfect timing here to talk about the CARP annual general meeting, which is this Wednesday, February 22nd at noon. Uh, Bill, um, we're all CARP members here. (laughs) Uh, How can we get involved? All right. Well, uh, we'd love to have you uh, attend. And for people uh, close enough to the uh, Zoomerplex in, in Toronto, we're going to have an in-person uh, uh, audience and hope you can come. But it'll also be online right across the uh, country. And if you go to the carp.ca website, you'll find an opportunity to uh uh, register on Eventbrite, and we'll send you the the link, and you can attend uh, the meeting. Uh, I can assure listeners it's going to be an interesting uh, annual meeting. We have uh, a couple of big surprise announcements uh, uh, to to make, and then we're going to close off the meeting with a uh, performance by comedian Ron James. Oh, great! Uh, who who lives in Toronto yes. now, but I must tell you, is from the East Coast uh, originally. So uh, I. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing Ron again and having him entertain. Uh, it's going to be full uh, 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 annual meeting, unlike probably many you've ever attended, that's going to have uh, very short business, uh, very big announcements, and then some entertainment to uh, close it off. Okay, so David, without giving anything away about these big announcements in terms of CARP successes over the past year and uh, what we can look forward to achieving uh, over the coming year? 
We're working on a lot of areas, and our uh, bill will report in detail on the advocacy that we're pushing, particularly with health care being uh, so important. Um, but to me, one of the big, who I've been you know, associated with CARP for almost 20 years, the, the, the biggest thing is as a result of the, partly as a result of the pandemic, but how many of our members are joining us online and how nationally we have become through online because they can get a webinar, they can attend a Zoom meeting, they can participate in CARP and its activities. And we have taken maximum advantage of that, um, particularly to get people to renew, to make CARP more relevant and more meaningful uh, to them. So uh, CARP is very much uh, a digital brand now, and I think that's one of the things you're going to see. Uh, we're going to report on some numbers about that at the meeting, but I think that's one of the most important uh, things that have developed. You're not constrained by uh, distance anymore, by physical mobility as much anymore. So we are able to reach a lot more people. And Peter, of course, CARP and Zoomer magazine go hand in hand. Yeah, and I've been, like David, I've been covering this for many years, over 20 years. And um, I I just wanted to ask either David or Bill the significance of of having a comedian rather than a politician uh, Ah, uh, headlining the event. Bill? Well, I think it, it's it's variety. It's uh, wanting to uh, wanting to have people uh, uh, be exposed to all kinds of uh, opportunities. And this is uh, CARP likes to do things differently, not follow yeah. a a standard mold. And this is just a good example. And of I course, you can yeah. become a CARP member. And uh, there's also a, if you go to CARP.ca, you can get uh, a year's worth or more of Zoomer magazine as you become a CARP member. And uh, you'll be all set up for Wednesday's uh, AGM if you do that, carp.ca. It has been very nice chatting with our Zoomer squad here on Family Day. Thank you guys for your time. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks, Thanks, Jane. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Jane for Libby, who returns on Wednesday. And coming up next, China's influence on Canada and Russia and what U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Ukraine today means to the international dynamic. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We are learning more about possible intervention by China in Canada's recent federal elections, according to the Globe and Mail in a published report this past Friday. And based on Canadian Security Intelligence Service documents, China actively influenced the 2021 federal election and its outcome of a Trudeau minority liberal government. There is a follow-up story in today's Globe revealing more influence. While Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is downplaying reports of Chinese state meddling. Stephen Chase is senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail and has been working this story. Also joining us, Charles Burton, a senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues. Hello to you all and thank you for spending some time. 
Good to speak to you, Jane. Hi, uh, Stephanie, and hi, Stephen. Stephen, I will begin with you. Let's talk about what you've learned about Chinese influence in our federal elections. Sure. Um, We're talking specifically about the 2021 election, and we are uh, what we have reported uh, in uh, stories, I guess, that began on Friday is that there was a concerted and deliberate effort by the uh, Chinese government through its consulates and through the influence its consulates wield uh, in Canada to uh, promote um, a line that uh, the that, that Canadians uh, of Chinese origin should vote for the Liberal government and not for the Conservatives, and that the Conservatives, if they were to get into power, would do things that would restrict, for instance, um, the ability of Chinese university students in mainland China to come to Canada and study, and that um, and to make the case that uh, a number of MPs that they have targeted uh, should not be reelected. So we've uh, we've talked about um, uh, not only the um, the actual. Uh, overall strategy, but some of the techniques that were used and some of the MPs that were targeted. In fact, uh, in one report, um, the uh, report talks about the Consul General in Vancouver boasting about how she and their efforts took down two Conservative MPs in Vancouver. How did CSIS get the lowdown on this? Well, that goes to sources and methods, and I wanted to sort of sidestep that question, if okay. you don't mind. No, no, no worries at all. Um, but but you have seen the documents. Correct. Yes, we have seen the documents. And in fact, the Liberal, the Conservatives, uh, sorry, the Chinese government uh, wanted, in fact, there to be a Liberal government, but a minority, because it preferred, in fact, that the parties in Parliament are fighting with each other, and there's less of an effort for one party with the, with the majority control to take uh, further efforts that might be seem contrary to China's interests. I want to talk to you more about methods uh, by the Chinese to influence uh, specific Canadians or organizations in this country. Uh, let's go over to Charles Burton. What do, you, what do you make of these reports? Well, I think they're highly credible reports. And, you know, Stephen Chase is probably the, the most authoritative uh, journalist in Canada today, and I'm delighted to, to read this stuff. It certainly... Um, provide some degree of vindication for things that a lot of us have been saying over the years about the activities of the Chinese embassy in Canada. You know, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, a Chinese um, United Front Work Department, and this is an agency which has 40,000 employees um, in China and um, in the party branch in the Chinese embassy in Ottawa, which is led by the ambassador. They're also people who are engaged in this kind of activity. And essentially, you know, it's designed to engage in covert and malign activities designed to deceptively influence and corrupt Canada's national policies, officials, research institutions, and democratic processes to serve the overall interest of China. So, you know, they they engage with uh, um, policymakers, maybe making them some implied commitments that if they go easy on China while they're in position of a public trust, they may derive benefits after retirement. And uh, they also engage in some coercive activities to get cooperation from persons of Chinese origin in Canada who, you know, would have family in China and would be concerned that if they didn't cooperate with uh, what the embassy wants, that 
that their family could suffer. And they try and suppress the activities of um, dissident groups in Canada, such as the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the the Hong Kong Chinese, the Taiwanese, the Marxist activists, and so on. So, you know, it's a very, very active um, initiative. And China has a very large diplomatic cohort in Canada. China has 146 diplomats here, compared to 46 for Japan, 35 for India, and 23 for Britain. So one can't help but think that the kind of thing that Steve Chase and Robert Fife have reported is uh, is going is being undertaken by a significant proportion of the diplomatic cohort of China and Canada today. Dr. Carvin, your reaction? Yeah, well, it's hard to follow those two. Um, so, yeah, I guess the thing is, it's like you know, I, some of the questions journalists have been asking is. You know why? Why aren't we doing anything about it? Why? Why is it so hard to, to kind of counter? And you know, it's interesting. Like uh, there's like it, according to the reporting um, that that Steve Chase has done, um, there's clearly offenses that have been committed, right? I mean, if one of the things that really sticks out to me is this idea of um, uh, unduc- undocumented cash donations or undeclared cash donations. I mean, that's a that's an actual elections act violation. So there are crimes being committed. This isn't just you know, gray zone stuff. I mean, a lot of it is. So um, one of the challenges we have in this country, uh, something that, you know, consecutive governments have left for a long time is, you know, taking these kinds of intelligence reports and turning them into evidence that can be used to prosecute. Right. And so this is a problem we've had for a very long time. And clearly, like, you know, kind of ignoring these, like, outstanding national security problems are having a detrimental effect, because these are things that straight up should be prosecuted. Um and they're just not being uh, addressed. And what concerns me is um, the inaction here. Maybe, you know, I think you could plausibly argue, okay, well, you know, the Liberals had strong enough majority that, or minority that it wouldn't, it wouldn't have affected the overall outcome if, like, you know, somewhere between 2 and 10 but uh, MPs were defeated. But at the same time, the fact is that this isn't, this isn't like a one and done. We know that there are documents suggesting this happened in 2019. Mm-hmm. There's documents suggesting this happened in 2021. It will happen again, and they're honing their efforts. And unless we come up with policy tools to really kind of address these activities, this is something we're going to continuously be facing in coming election cycles, and then that kind of throws our democratic institutions into disarray. Uh, Stephen Chase, in your report today, you mentioned that there are color-coded political interference tactics. Speak to us about that. Sure. Yes. In our report today, uh, we've, we've got a, a number of, of new developments, one of which, of course, is we talk about uh, the, the degree to which the Chinese consulates here target Canadian business people traveling to China, Canadian officials, Canadian members of parliament, and how they, in fact, instruct their different um, sort of uh, departments and agencies, even the Bank of China, to tell them when, in fact, people are heading over. They consider these uh, work targets but there are uh, there's sort of a, a methodology description here of the ways they they try to gain influence over politicians, over executives, corporate executives, over academics, and even vulnerable Chinese Canadians. Uh, they have uh, they just sort of this report groups it into three colors. Um, blue is, is cyber attacks on the target's computers, smartphones, you know, bugging their hotel rooms to gain information that might be used for blackmail. Gold refers to bribes, gold being the color of money or gold, uh, and yellow is, is what CSIS describes as hot honeypots, which are, of course, uh, a, a long-established phrase for using sexual seduction to compromise a target. Hmm. 
Charles, when it comes to the average voter, though, if we reflect back on 2021, these these interference tactics uh, by China in our uh, in our election, how would they go after the average voter? Or is there enough being done uh, to uh, in terms of their tactics that doesn't affect the average person going and casting a ballot? Well, I think it, it certainly affects the average uh, voter in Canada who gets their source of information primarily from um, Chinese sources. So, you know, WeChat is uh, was the main, I think, vector initially used to provide disinformation about um, the, uh, the former member for Richmond, uh, Stevenson, Kenny Chu, um, and those people who make up a considerable portion of the voters in certain ridings where there's high concentration of ethnic Chinese uh, may not be getting their information from elsewhere. So, you know, when when the 2021 election occurred, there was a, a poll that came out that suggested that the Conservatives might be heading to a minority government. Immediately, WeChat was flooded with, you know, just noxious disinformation about Mr. Chu and about a bill that he was sponsoring to to develop a foreign information interference registry similar to legislation in Australia and the United States. And essentially, you know, the registry was about people who received benefits from the Chinese state. The gold aspect of Steve's story um, should be required to declare it. If they're getting sources from a foreign government, you know, we should know that they have a conflict of interest if they uh, subsequently start to, to make statements about things like Huawei or or Chinese um, uh, high-tech uh, uh, research in Canadian universities and so on. So, um, you know, it seems that 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 may have affected the result in in at least three ridings, but we can't tell, and I don't think the prime minister can tell whether it had a definitive impact mm-hmm. on voting behavior. We don't know why people vote the way they vote. You know, why do you go to the polling station and put an X? next to one candidate and not against another. You know, it's a secret ballot. So I, I, I think that the fact of Chinese interference is well established, but the idea that seems to be being put out that it doesn't matter very much because uh, it probably didn't have any effect on the result of, of the election is, is, you know, pretty much a false argument. And and I think that any illegal activities, as Stephanie points out, particularly the this alleged, um, you know, that people, proxies of the Chinese state would would make the maximum donation as Canadians to uh, election campaigns and then take their tax receipt to the Chinese consulate and get reimbursement for the uh, the amount that wasn't reimbursed by Revenue Canada. You know, that kind of appallingly illegal activity should just not be tolerated. And we ought to give the RCMP some priority to deal with it. Okay, well, thank you for that explanation. That was great. Uh, Dr. Carvin, let's go now to Trudeau's reaction, downplaying all of the the, the reports in the Globe and Mail. Uh, And at the same time, committee members are investigating possible interference by the Chinese in our 2019 election. So uh, other than not acknowledging this Chinese interference, what is the what do you think the strategy is in Trudeau's response to reporters the other day? Well, I think it's, it's. I think it said something that um, Trudeau's response is: we're going to find the people leak, le- leaking these documents. So, uh, Steve Chase, you're on the line. You know, um, I'm sure you're in your bunker. That's you can stay there. Um, <laughs> the, um, the 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 fact is, I, I think this is this is nothing 
new. Like, and we have this is the first kind of real documentary evidence we have to really kind of show a phenomenon we have believed is going on in Canada for some time, right? Um, and I think one of the challenges we actually haven't been listening to the diaspora. Right. The diaspora had like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and, you know, like Charles Burt went through all of them, the Hong Kongers, the um, Taiwanese and uh, other kind of pro-democracy activists. Like they have been documenting this stuff and, and subject to it for a long time. And, you know, Amnesty International uh, in Canada wrote a report about it, about, um, you know, it, it's hard because people don't want to speak up. Um, one of the key challenges we have is that, you know, if you're threatened with violence or if your family's threatened with violence, you can go to the police, but the police aren't then reporting it. There's no centralized authority that's collecting this data and following it up. And if you call CSIS, they'll say, okay, well, thank you for this information. Um, we will, uh, you know, write that down, but they don't have any enforcement powers, right? So, like, there's nothing going on. And I think, um, I think there's a lot of frustration in the security services right now about this particular issue. It's not surprising to me, and and I don't know how Steve got his sources, and I don't want to know because it's like a whole story there. But like, it's not surprising to me that someone might leak this information because they're they're frustrated that the government of Canada is is not doing anything, and you know, in a lot of ways, the Chinese are eating our lunch. And we just haven't responded strongly to it for whatever reasons. I think there are very legitimate reasons to be concerned about stigmatizing the Chinese community in Canada, right? Um, that, you know, we want to make sure that we're not actually um, accusing people who are just trying to live their lives of this kind of behavior. Um, but at the same time, this clearly, there are a number of Chinese activists who have been speaking out about this. We've ignored them. And I, I don't think the prime minister's response is good enough. He needs to do more, and the government needs to be seen to be doing more to combat this problem. Okay, excellent. Uh, we need to take a quick break, uh, but I want to transition to China's support of Russia as the anniversary of Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine approaches this Friday in tandem with the historic visit by Joe Biden to Kiev, Ukraine today. Um, so hang on, everybody, and we will get back uh, to those angles in just a moment. We've got Dr. Stephanie Carvin with us, as well as Charles Burton and Stephen Chase of The Globe and Mail. And uh, your phone calls as well. If you would like to get in on the conversation, lines are always open. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. We've been talking about a report in the Globe and Mail, uh, a multi-day report on China's influence over our most recent federal election. And we're transitioning now to talk about China's support of Russia. And joining me, Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail, mm-hmm. Charles Burton, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international affairs at Carlton 
University. Let's let's talk about the developments over the last couple of days. I'll, I'll begin with you, Stephen. We have Wang Yi, the top Chinese diplomat, meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in Munich on Saturday. We have Wang Yi going to Moscow this week to meet with Vladimir Putin. And we have U.S. President Joe Biden visiting Ukraine today in a grand gesture of support. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, it was a remarkable uh, presidential visit to a uh, country under war and a city which is under frequent attack. And without the normal U.S. military infrastructure there to to support him. So, yes, a, a, a remarkable visit, obviously timed with the anniversary that's approaching of Russia's um, Expanded military assault on Ukraine that began February 24th last year. Um, there is a, it's been a year of, uh, increasing support for Ukraine from NATO allies. We moved from, you know, javelins and flak jackets to main battle tanks. Um, and the, right now there's a Russian offensive underway to try to, uh, regain the upper hand there. Um, but what's uh, especially concerning is the Chinese government, which has been uh, providing aid and comfort to the Russians over the last year. They haven't been providing military aid, but they've been buying their oil. They've, they've, they've imposed no sanctions on them and essentially have been a, a refuge for the, for Moscow in the last year. Uh, now there's concern, uh, voiced by Secretary of State Blinken, um, that in fact, uh, China may begin providing lethal aid to Russia. So, um, a very disturbing and, uh, destabilizing, um, factor if that in fact happens. Charles Burton, your reaction to these developments? Well, I think we have a lot to worry about. I mean, certainly uh, China does not want to see uh, Russia fail to uh, achieve its objective in Ukraine because it sends out a signal with regard to Taiwan that the West might uh, successfully prevent China from annexing uh, Taiwan. And I think in general, you know, if China is able to get some kind of leverage over Russia by assisting them in this war, uh, then, you know, the potential for Russia assisting China in the Canadian Arctic or uh, providing military support for a Chinese military action on, on Taiwan exists. So the whole thing is gelling in a, in a very uh, ominous way. And it's, I guess, a normal sort of response to the fact that the West is now becoming much more active in the Indo-Pacific to try and challenge uh, China's expansionist uh, ambitions. So, you know, we're heading, I think, closer and closer to what could be a military confrontation between China and Russia and the West. And uh, mm-hmm. God help us if that uh, occurs uh, in, in, in the next little while. Absolutely. Dr. Carvin? Okay, I feel like I have the responsibility to be moderately optimistic. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. Um, So if there was like a meeting between Blinken and his counterpart, that's probably a good thing because it was just, you know, there was just a high-level meeting canceled in uh, between China and the United States uh, following this bizarre balloon incident that happened. That's all I talked about last week. Um, And, you know, I I think it's good. I think you want to keep the communication channels open. Um, And I do think that original meeting was building on some attempts to try and get the United States and China, um, you know, obviously not seeing eye to eye, but at least talking after the G20 summit where there was reportedly a not terrible meeting between President Biden and President Xi. So, look, keep those channels open. What does concern me was that announcement at the Munich conference that, um, the U.S. does think that China may be considering this legal aid. Um, 
that does follow a pattern of the United States doing so-called pre-bunking or, um, you know, kind of declassifying uh, intelligence information in order to, you know, basically try to prevent things from happening by exposing it uh, before it actually happens. So that is what, what I am worried about. It will be interesting to see how that meeting between China and Russia goes. They have, of course, you know, before the conflict, they declared a friendship without limits. Turns out there's a lot of limits <laughs> to that, that friendship so far, um, but that that could change, and, and that is a huge risk. And I think the West does need to continuously make it clear that look, like this is not somewhere where you want to go. In the end, I think China does benefit from a longer war between um, you know uh, Russia uh, in, in in Ukraine and you know the West supporting it because we're distracted from Taiwan. Uh. And on top of that, we. Um, uh, you know, I mean, a, a weaker Russia that's more dependent on China is perfectly fits into China's interests, right? So um, it, it's very much a one-way friendship in a lot of ways. So I, I think, you know, we'll have to see how things play out in the next week. And uh, um, so I'm just going to I'm just going to take a deep breath for now and cross my fingers, um, which is, you know, hope. Uh, hope is no friend. Uh, it's, hope is not a strategy. But it's it's what I have right now. Okay, and Stephen, so based on what Dr. Carvin is talking about there, it, China would appear to be working all the angles. Yeah, and uh, I think that that's going to be a really important factor going forward. Um, Russia has, I would argue, worn out its its uh, its soldier force, and it's been trying to uh, draft more. Uh, it's worn out its 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 military material, like its equipment, and it's been struggling to get more. Uh, it does have, like I let's not be let's not overlook this. It has uh, a capacity for suffering and and a capacity to spend soldiers in a way that I don't think many other countries have. But uh, if China comes in and become and begins to uh, augment its ability to to launch an offensive, then I think that's a very disturbing. Yes, uh, development. absolutely. Um, before I let you all go, I'll get final comments from Charles Burton. Uh, but Stephen Chase, uh, uh, what are plans in terms of advancing the China story Friday and today? Um, front page news. Can we expect something tomorrow? Stay tuned. OK, I know you don't want to. Scoop, yes. You don't want to <laughs> scoop yourself here. Uh, and Charles Burton, your final thoughts here. Well, I mean, you know, I can't wait for tomorrow. I mean, Steve has done this three front pages in a row. I do think that I am concerned that people inside CSIS or other elements of government feel so, um, um, you know, let down by government that they're prepared to take the considerable risk of violating their, their official secrets oath and, um, and showing these uh, classified documents to journalists. You know, they do face criminal uh, prosecution. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it's a bad sign that we've got to a point where the government um, is not forthcoming. And so people who are loyal Canadians who are privy to our secrets are, are, in, are you know, freelancing and getting this information out to all of us. But um, this has been a great, uh, a great discussion. It's been wonderful to be with Stephen and Stephanie. Absolutely. Um, really a privilege for me as well. Thank you all for your time. Cheers. You're welcome.
Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail. Charles Burton, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canada-China relations. And Dr. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues. Jane for Libby, she returns on Wednesday. Tomorrow, join Marissa. She's in with our Recovering Politicians panel. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.